Welcome to the BMJ's podcast on decolonizing health and medicine. I'm Jocelyn Clark, the journal's international editor, and I've come to the BMJ with a real passion and commitment to decolonial and equitable practices in publishing and editing. This podcast is part of a larger project at the BMJ to contribute to debates and progress towards decolonizing institutions and knowledge systems in health and medicine. We've been listening to and learning from experts and colleagues around the world, and they tell us that present inequities and lack of progress in health are linked to a failure to confront colonial pasts. We invite you to listen to these conversations with these experts, and we welcome your feedback. This is the second episode in our podcast series where we're trying to navigate through the complexities of decolonizing health. This time we're trying to better understand where we've come from. How have our colonial past set a trajectory for healthcare and research? I'm Navjoit Lada, clinical editor at the BMJ, and as the series unfolds, we hope to explore how ideas and structures first established in colonial times have permeated medicine, science, global health, and your everyday clinical practice. It was Orwell who said, he who owns the past owns the future. And in this second episode, where we're looking at the influence of colonial thinking on history and health, we're learning just how much truth there is to that. To discuss all of this with us, I'm joined by a panel who've been thinking about the past. And perhaps the best place to start is with our historian, Sanjoy. Could I get you to introduce yourself? My name is Sanjoy Bhattacharya. Uh, I'm currently the head of the School of History at the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom. I'm a medical historian, uh, but I also study social, political and cultural history. I'd like to believe that the work I do helps create more inclusive uh, environments within international global health, which I see as two distinctive uh, uh, spaces uh, within this global frame that we often talk about, and I'm sure we'll discuss today as well. Thanks very much for joining us, Sanjoy. And um, Chelsea? So my name is Chelsea Wadigo, I'm Mananjali and South Islander woman. I'm Professor of Indigenous Health at QUT and the Executive Director of the Kurumba Institute, which is our Indigenous Research Institute. Um, I started out in population health as an Indigenous community health worker and over the years became frustrated with the kind of educative, evidence-based approach to addressing Indigenous health disparities and, um, you know, came to to realise the ways in which uh, medicine was an apparatus of colonial control Um, and became interested in looking at um, structural racism, um, the racial violence at the hands of the state, which includes our um, hospital and health services here. It's great, so great to have you with us, Chelsea, and I'm um, already wanting to kind of dive into to what you've just some of what you've just said. But we'll keep going around, and we'll return to we'll return to that. Um, Catherine, hi, my my name is Catherine Chobtunji. I am currently the executive director of the African Population and Health Research Center that is based in Nairobi, Kenya. Um, I was born and raised in Uganda and I came to Kenya about 17 years ago after my PhD training that I did in epidemiology and um, that was in Heidelberg, Germany. And uh, when I joined EPHRC as a postdoc, I had interest in non-communicable disease research and the interface with health systems. Um, but of course, after a few years, I went into leadership, so I don't do much research these days. I'm more involved in um, running the African Population and Health Research Centre. And I think my identity is closely tied with that, because what attracted me to this centre is the fact that it's African-led and Africa-based um, international organisation. And that's a quite unique identity. It's not for profit, it's non-state. And so we sit in this, we sort of occupy a unique space in um, you know, global health research, global health practice, but also within the national context in which we operate. Well, thank you, Catherine. And um, I want to acknowledge, I mean, you've all been so generous in, in giving your time for this podcast, but it is five in the morning where you are. So thank you so much for um, joining us so early as well. Um, and Shay. 
Thank you very much. I am Shaya Bimbala. I, I'm a health systems researcher from Nigeria, currently based in Australia. I was born, raised, educated in Nigeria. I have a background as a medical doctor who left very quickly and became a public health person. And I study um, health systems. I teach health systems at the University of Sydney, where I am an academic. I focus a lot on health system governance and on decentralization, and increasingly on knowledge systems as it pertains to global health. I'm also the editor-in-chief of BMJ Global Health, and in that role, I have had the privilege of having a ringside seat to a lot of the discussions around decolonizing global health. And I've also had the privilege of, in fact, curating quite a bit of that conversation and um, being very excited in many ways that it continues to grow. And often um, it's called a decolonizing global health movement, which is a framing that I, I find rather cringeworthy, but still um, something worth being happy about that it exists at all. Thank you so much all for joining us and we're so um, thrilled to be having this discussion with you all. Um, I think one of the things we're really keen to get to grips with in this series and and in this episode is um, this uh, understanding of getting to grips with the fact that understanding our colonial past is really key to understanding how to go about improving health equity in the current moment. And you know, confronting that past can be challenging for various reasons. And um, I just want to hear a bit about uh, from you all about how how have you come to that understanding? And and maybe maybe Catherine, I'll come to you first if that's uh, okay. Do you, do you see this this um, sense of having a, an understanding of the past as being important to the work you're doing in the present? Yes, actually, I've been I've been reflecting on that question, and my first understanding, my first exposure to the colonial history of medicine and the colonial history of public health was in my master's course, which I undertook in Germany. It was not in my country. Um, I was sitting in this, um, the first lecture in our public health course, and it was on the history of public health. And that was the first time I actually knew that even the medicine that I was practicing in Uganda before I left to do my master's had this kind of past, because this is not something that I learned in medical school or high school or anything like that. Me medicine has such deep colonial roots, the way it is practiced currently on the African continent. You know, how, where hospitals were set, the diseases which were deemed important, and how even many, many, many years later, even 60 years post-independence, flag independence for most African countries, not much has changed. What we think is important, where medicine is practiced, who practices it. So I see that. But of course, now I'm not in clinical practice. I'm sort of on, on, on the outside. And now I see more about how the global system, whether it is the knowledge system, whether it is the global health system as we know it, I, I see how it works and what that means for me sitting in Kenya, many times as a sitting duck, <laughs> waiting to be targeted by good things or bad things or to be ignored. So, um, yeah, that's what I see. You see, and, and does that affect the way in which you kind of do your activism work or other work that you do? Yes, it does. And in a way, it's frightening. Actually, it is frightening when you imagine that what we are up against is a system which has been there for maybe 200 years. So it's like, how do you, where do you even start? How do you uproot this kind of system? And sometimes I feel like we're scratching the surface. I feel like we're doing maybe the things which are very much downstream. And the upstream thing, maybe that's where the hardest work is. So um, I think uh, when, I, when I think about the colonial history of medicine and global health, what frightens me is how deeply entrenched it is and how perhaps it is impossible to uproot. And then I try, have to sort of um, yeah, snap out of it and say, you have to do something. You can't just throw your hands up in the air and say, this is too hard. So find out something that you can do. Yeah, uh, but I think as you're saying, like the, where those legacies are so sort of steeped back in history, I think having a sense of that is so important, overwhelming though it might be. Um, and Chelsea, I guess as an expert in indigenous health, of course, understanding those the historical context is 
a key part of what you do? Yeah, look, I, I don't think I think about a colonial past. I think about a colonial present, um, being an Indigenous Australian in a settler colonial state. Right. And, um, you know, it, it's it's interesting to me here in this country um, the refusal to recognise history, even its most recent forms. Um, and so here in Australia and many states in, in across this continent had protectionist policies of which um, did not cease until in my father's time um, here in Queensland around the 70s and into the early 1980s. And interest in Indigenous health for the benefit of Indigenous peoples really only emerges in the 1990s. Um, and even then, um, when I came through university, the texts were produced by non-Indigenous epidemiologists who were still charting our death, who were still, you know, investing in research that was, you know, fulfilling the promise of a dying race. Um, uh, and so I would argue that there is still little investment in Indigenous health that is in the interests of Indigenous peoples, that is led by Indigenous peoples. Um, and there still hasn't been this relinquishment of um, this idea of a race destined to die out. For me, and I guess what's deemed controversial about the work that I do is we're talking about a violent colonial present, not as a past thing. And I'm always struck I'm struck by this talk about decolonising here in this place, particularly by settlers, um, because we haven't had our post-colonial moment. If we have, I've missed the party um, and I'm disappointed that I missed it. Um, and one can only look at the current debate happening in this country as to whether or not we will include Indigenous Australians to have a voice to Parliament with no actual power. And that's still seen as a radical proposition. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, I can't think of a colonial past and I think we have to talk about a colonial present, um, particularly in this place here. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, I, I should more accurately describe it as kind of acknowledging history to understand a colonial present. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, and um, Shay, uh, Tell us about your, you've, you've talked about having a sort of ringside seat for a lot of this discussion and leading a lot of this discussion yourself. Where where, where do you find yourself on this? For, for me, I think this began in, in childhood. Um, my grandfather had this library and there was a book in it um, titled Olodumare, God in the Yoruba Belief. Now, we'd been raised as Christians in very, it was a very Christian home. And it was the first time I, I had an encounter with my ancestors' religion and religious practices. It struck me that I had been lied to. And I think that, that was, for me, the important part, that people have told me lies. Um, and they had convinced us um, that our history was demonic and evil. And we had believed it. And we were teaching the same to our children. And, and from that moment on, I, I started to lose my Christian faith, and I think I lost it completely about two or three years after, when I was in high school. So, so that's one strand of, the, of my story. The other strand is that my mother was a midwife who had a community practice. And so again, as a young kid, I was privy to a lot of you know, adult conversations around health and care. And I got to understand what we, what I later learned was called social determinants of health. It was something I grew up with. I understood really well. And what struck me as peculiar was that as a medical student, these things were largely absent. You know, there was what I'd learned to be health and care from my mother, observing my mother, were not the kind of things that were central in my training as a doctor. They were sort of on, mm -hmm. on the edge. And I didn't, couldn't quite understand that until I, again... Um, inquired about the history of medical education in Nigeria. Then I got to understand that the first medical school in Nigeria was founded with the intent of, of, of training doctors who could practice in London. And it, was, and it built a legacy in many ways of health and care systems in Nigeria. So we can't even begin to talk about a lot of these things without going in some way reimagining re what health and care systems could look like in a space like Nigeria. So, so that, that was, for me, in many ways, my introduction to these conversations and built and built over the years. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. Um, and Sandra, you're, you're a historian. So um, 
how, how I guess that's that's your approach to this this how you've approached this this area is uh, from these historical contexts. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, the work you've done? Yeah, so you know, I mean, I've always been interested in history because I had an uncle who was a historian who I think was a very important influence on me when I was growing up, and then there was a neighbour. Uh, Professor Pumkum Roy, who used to teach at Jawaharlal Nehru University, who she was an immense uh, uh, role model for me again as I was growing up. And having those people around made me realize very quickly that the history that was taught in elite private schools in India was propaganda uh, in the sense that it was very simplistic history that uh, before 1947, you had British rule and everything was bad. And after August, 15th of August, 1947, there was independence and everything was better. And yet, growing up in Delhi, you would look around and see a lot of poverty, a lot of inequality, uh, uh, hidden practice of caste, uh, which I was very aware of in an elite school system where these things weren't supposed to matter but mattered in private spaces, uh, in domestic settings. And it bothered me immensely. Uh, but then I went and did a master's at Jawaharlal Nehru University, which is another very hypercritical space. But that is where I got interested in studying the Second World War and its role in political decolonization, the departure of the British from India in '47, two years after the war had ended. I began to get interested in history of medicine because I was studying the Bengal famine of 43-44. Now I realized very quickly that the Bengal famine of 43-44 had not resulted in 1.5 million deaths as the British claimed in their official report, which was released on the day the Second World War ended. It was a good day to hide bad news. But actually, once I started doing research, I realized that between five to seven million people had died not just in Bengal, but colonial Eastern India, and that the naming of the famine was itself a political act because they wanted the counting only to happen in the province of Bengal, not the surrounding provinces. So I became very quickly aware that histories of humanitarianism, histories of health interventions in humanitarian crises like this, histories of um, care, healthcare, healthcare provision, all of this was highly politicized. Labels were politicized. Definitions were politicized. So, yes, I came in with a history interest, but I quickly realized that there was a politics to study. There was international relations to study. And all of this has to be done together in inclusive ways so that you don't just listen to the ones who produce the labels, but who then suffer the results of that label making. Thanks. Chelsea? Yeah, look, I mean, one of the challenges I've experienced, particularly in uh, population health, is the monopolisation of knowing of the clinician and the epidemiologist. And look, some of my best friends are epidemiologists. Um, <laughs> but um, yes, yes, Catherine, you are. Um, but um, the ability to think about, you know, structures of repression um, the ability to think beyond, you know, counting um, uh, death and despair. And, you know, and, and we also see it in our traditional medical journals, um, in the types of um, uh, publications one can um, have accepted. And so, you know, any you go to a, a, a school of population health and you won't have a historian, you may be lucky to have one social scientist um, and the work that we're trying to do here and we're looking to build a new field of research called Indigenous Health Humanities to create a space where we broaden who we consider to be a health researcher. And so in the work that I do, I work alongside those in media, um, journalists, scholars, political scientists, medical anthropologists, historians, um, that there are other ways of understanding um, health inequalities and to do how to, what to do about them. And um, what's been frustrating for me in the work that I do, particularly in naming race, 
is that I get cast by the epidemiologist as being radical and political and it's only the clinician and the epidemiologist that are impartial and objective as though that's a thing. Right. And so we just have this monopolisation of, of knowledge production. So I, I think there's something to be said in terms of the role of um, our leading health journals, our schools of population health in how they're all complicit in closing down the possibilities of thinking about our social world in its broader sense to be able to affect change in it. Yeah, and I think this idea that data or evidence is somehow objective and, and not subject to those same those same issues. Well, I think that brings us it on quite nicely to talking maybe about the decolonizing global health movement, as it were, and um, I guess whether that's been part, you know, some of that effort has been part of that. Um, and I just wanted to ask you um, all the the sort of ways that you've experienced uh, this movement of decolonizing global health, what it means to you, and are there benefits? I, I know that um, some of what we'll come on to talk about are the ways in which this move, you know, having this buzzword label might be in some ways limiting. And and Shay, you already mentioned that you know it's a bit cringeworthy, but are there positive aspects to it? And and have you seen examples of where it it's bringing benefits? Um, Shay, why don't I come to you first? Yeah, um, I suppose the uh, my the first thing to say about the thing called a movement um, is that um, we, we cannot possibly call it a movement. If anything at all, it is multiple movement. It's right. very many different right. movements. Um, and again, I mean, Chelsea is here in this session and, and she, among um, many other indigenous scholars and activists in Australia, for me represent um, a very important movement uh, in a settler colonial state. In my mind, that, that is part of the many different movements that are discussing issues of colon colonization and coloniality and health. Another one, and perhaps the one that is loudest in the global health, um, and I for the audience in, in inverted commas, scare quotes as it were, um, thing called global health, um, is, is that there are many people like me who look like me, come from um, post-colonial, pre previously colonized countries, who find themselves in the places described as the West and also have to reckon with their own history and relationship with those spaces in, in peculiar ways. Now, a lot of what we call the decolonizing global health discussions today are discussions being had by those people, people like me, right? Now, if, if you exist within that particular space, it would seem as though that is the only conversation, that's the most important conversation. Right. But to my mind, it is just one out of many. And for someone who is in Australia, the version of conversation that people like Chelsea Watergo is leading is far more important. And the risk is to think it's just one, mm -hmm. um, I, I, which also then is the risk that you don't listen and learn from all the others happening and try to make sense of them together and apply the insights from one to another in different ways. So for me, that, that is an important sort of risk and downside, which is why I sort of said, you know, um, it's cringeworthy when you sort of say you're decolonizing global health. Right. The other way, right. sorry, now I'm going to stretch it slightly, give me just one or two more minutes. Um, the, the other way in which I think the decolonizing global health conversation is risk is, is, is something worth being careful about is that decolonization is a radical process. It's, it, that's not, it's, not, it's not play, it's not child's play. Um, you, you don't begin to change structures, right, without unsettling deeply entrenched power. And deeply entrenched power does not let go of power without fighting you, right? So, so it, it's, a, it's a deeper, deeper, deeper thing, and it's a much more important political thing than, you know, a lot of talk um, can ever possibly get at. So, so in a sense... Part of what I'm saying in whole is that this conversation invites us to deeper engagement, right. to engagement in multiple spaces, uh, to new insights and, and, and proper struggle, um, which, yeah, all important to have. Yeah, so we want to avoid that, I guess, homogenization or just thinking it's one thing um, and sort of recognise that it's broad, mul multiple and there are conversations and actions that need to be happening at kind of many, many levels and in many places. Um, 
is that happening? Like, is is the those kind of uh, I don't know micro movements or sort of things that may be under this umbrella? You know, um, are there ways in which that sort of power and privilege has been confronted and uh, you know inequities have been highlighted? Do, do you see um, much in the way of progress? Maybe if I could direct that to um, Catherine. Yes, I mean, I think sometimes I wonder <laughs> when we leave like this room and go home, like anything happens. Sometimes I wonder because I think my experience has been these snippets of there's a webinar, you know, go say something. Uh, there's a, I don't know, a master's course, go give a lecture for an hour. And I imagine many people are doing that, but I, I miss that sort of sense of purpose that's, we're not just going to talk and go home. That is, but then they, sometimes I ask myself, who who is that person supposed to be? Who are those people that are supposed to have this sort of continuous, systematic dismantling of power that Shay talked about? And and I get a sense that there's something happening. Lots of conversations happening, and I think um, when you when you're confronted with how daunting you know this whole dismantling of deeply entrenched power systems is then people pick out maybe what is easy or they pick out what is possible within their spheres of influence. So there are lots of things happening that I've encountered. And um, I think in my way, in, in, in my view, it is people figuring out that the, the, the whole thing is big, but maybe we can pick out the piece that we can bite and we can chew and let's deal with that. And so that's what, that's what my experience is. So I think I've experiences with some movement, for instance, with funders in the place of equitable partnerships. And I think funders decided that framing decolonization as equitable partnerships maybe is within their remit of influence. Right. And so they do that. And so you, you encounter that kind of thing. Um, I've encountered, as I've said, master's courses that have introduced lectures on decolonization. I've encountered webinars that have been organized by graduate students in different parts of the world. So it, it's almost as if we all feel like this is too big for us. Let's just do what's within our power. And that is my experience of, of interfacing with those little things that are happening. And in some ways, it's comforting because, as I said, it can be frightening thinking about, is it even possible? Will it happen in my lifetime that there will be this significant shift? But... Um, yeah, rather than say, okay, this is too hard. I'm okay with different people doing these little things wherever they are. But I think at some point, um, and that's always a challenge where I ask myself, who is they or who is we? Because I ask myself, we need to do something. And then I'm like, who is we? I don't even know who we is. Um, but having said that, um, my own, I, I think my own contribution, if I could say that, is of course the the advocacy, the, the, but as an institution, also trying to question and say, if there was to be a change, what kind of change do we want to see? Because it is not change where you transfer power or you shift power, there's this whole narrative around power shifting, where power is shifted from institutions in the global north, quote unquote, to institutions in the global south, to continue the same power play like it can't be that we get the power and then we perpetuate the same way medicine is practiced, the same way public health is practiced, the same way we don't listen to people, the same way we don't value uh, lived experiences, the same way we 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 have we you know we we put premium on knowledge that is generated through scientific inquiry and not knowledge of you know people's lived experiences. So there, there are all those things. An optimistic take might be that this is. These small things that kind of, you know, people, influ you know, whether that's a funder or whoever is in a position of influence can pick off might be the start of, you know, That's how I, console, that's how I console myself. <laughs> yeah, that somehow but I we guess need more... all these little collective actions and somehow they're going to coalesce yeah. at some point. Then we'll gain some kind of momentum and then we'll tackle the big things. Um, yeah. Otherwise, it's, um, it's hard. Yeah. Well, I won't bring in the, the more pessimistic <laughs> take then, which is that, I don't think we have to be optimistic <laughs> and I, um, yeah. I think it's okay to be pessimistic and I think it's necessary if we are to create new systems. I mean, I think if we're going to be decolonizing, then we have to be abolitionist, we have to be anti-capitalist, we have to be anti-racist um, and we have to see um, 
um, what is wrong with the current arrangements of things in order to have a desire to build anew. And so I'm okay with not having a sense of progress when it comes to decolonisation in a settler colonial state because my strategy is building an army that can fight an ongoing war given the settlers are never leaving and that it is an ongoing project that there is it's not a destination um and being honest about the ugly truth of this place is fundamental in order to to inspire change and and fuel um, movements that um, compel change because we know power is not readily ceded. It must be compelled. And so I'm excited by um, the ugliness of things, uh, finding joy in the fight um, because decolonisation here, I mean, I remember reviewing a um, journal article written by um, white women settlers um, talking about decolonisation and they're, them reflecting on how they're decolonising. Um, you know, the settlers have stolen decolonisation much like they've taken our land and um, I'm not going to accessorise those kinds of forms of decolonisation that basically make colonisation seem okay now. And that's what we're seeing. Certainly here um, we're seeing um, settlers use the term decolonising um, without wanting to deal with race, with history, with power um, and, you know, who clutch pearls at those of us who speak the truth and speak truth to power. And so I think there has been a violence in de- decolonisation discourse um, in settler colonial states that serves the settlers to make them feel better about their place here. Right. And, you know, I think Tuck and Yang's work about decolonisation is not a metaphor, that there's an incommensurability when it comes to decolonisation for Indigenous peoples. You know, Indigenous futurity is at odds with the settler futurity. So it means an ongoing war. Um, it, it, it means that things aren't, you know, um, we all come together in a combat moment, um, that there is a constant war being waged here. And that's OK. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of you know, um, anti-hope, um, <laughs> I, I don't believe in it, um, but I do find joy in the fight and um, bringing others um, and supporting others in that collective fight because this is a movement and movements and I think, um, you know, it's an exciting place to be to work at the margins of things. Yeah, for sure. And... Um I mean, there's a sense in which if this work is deep and radical, as, as Shay said, we should feel uncomfortable and we f- should feel challenged by it. Um, Shay? I, I just wanted to, to build slightly on, on Chelsea's point about hope and, and pessimism in, the, in that I have come to um, the resolution and uh, agreement with myself that the change that I want to see in the world will not happen in my lifetime. Um, and, and that at best, what I can do is do my work so well that my children's generation will have a larger critical mass to push. And, and if they're not successful, then the generation after them will. But, but that, all of that depends on each generation doing its best to make sure that the next generation has a larger mass of people. Because I believe very strongly that you need many people um, to, to, to push um, a lot. And for me, part of that push, I'm speaking as a Nigerian now, part of that push is convincing, say, my friends and colleagues back home in Nigeria that there's a need to push, that, that you don't just accept what history has handed over to you. Um, and you cannot begin to imagine how much, how we've been so educated that we've accepted that our place in the world is of an inferior status. Or... That that you know, we we can't we can't push back, we can't rebuild, we can't reimagine. It's, it's the world that's behind it to us is the world, and so we'll we'll deal with it, we'll live with it rather. Now, for me, if you know, if I if I can, if my friends can manage to shift as many minds as possible, that, that a different world is possible, um, th- then you know, I, I I would be happy, in that something would happen maybe a hundred years after I'm, I'm dead. So, so that, that's how I come at my pessimism and I allow, I, I, at least I can live with it. Um, 
And because we're on a DMJ platform, I think, I think this is also worth saying as an example of, of that kind of power and of shifting power, right? That, that the, the BMJ is what it is because Britain went around killing people, invading countries and dominating them. There's no BMJ without that. Right? And, and to come to that realization is to ask oneself that what, what would Nigeria look like if Britain hadn't come and done what it did there? Now, what, what, would the knowledge, what would the knowledge ecosystem in a space like Nigeria look like without Britain? And then come to the present, because that was the past. That's the colonial past. The colonial present. What would the knowledge ecosystem in Nigeria look like without a dominant BMJ or dominant Lancet today? So, I mean, I kept quiet because I wanted to listen and learn, but I also want to provoke here a bit. Um, so, you know, I mean, in my experience, making peace is more difficult than making war. War is relatively easier. So, as I realized that I perhaps have 15 years left in my professional career, I want to invest that in making bridges. And it's not easy. It means compromise, and sometimes compromise is difficult with a colonizer. But let me use a historical analogy. When the British first came to South Asia to colonize, they disempowered certain local elites, and they empowered certain local elites. It was part of the divide-and-rule policy, and the empowered local elites, the people they empowered, the people they allowed, to retain some power became a major foundation of colonialism. They also created a new group of elites, English-speaking elites who didn't exist before, who were given the most power. When political decolonization happened in August 1947 and the British left South Asia, uh, that is India and Pakistan, uh, uh, Sri Lanka uh, became independent a year later, it was those English-speaking elites who basically took up the gaps that the British had left. It's not as if the nationalists who were fighting the British were some sort of pure, sort of non-English-speaking bearers of tradition who came in and started creating these new countries. These were elites defined by language, by class, by wealth, by caste, by religion. So, you know, it's not as if the non-English speaking tribal chief from, let's say, central India became the prime minister of India, independent India. It was a Kashmiri Brahmin who studied in Trinity College, Cambridge, who counted Chankai Sheikh as one of his best friends, who became the Prime Minister of India and also the Foreign Minister of India. So, you know, that history reminds us that we can't be lazy. We have to be self-reflective about what we consider the indigenous versus the colonial. So there is this historical analogy that I want you to consider where all this is complex both in the colonial, what we like to often call the colonial, what we like to call the nationalist or the indigenous, there are complexities. So what am I uncomfortable with? I'm uncomfortable with the group within decolonizing global health that overgeneralizes. The WHO is colonial. No, no, the WHO is not colonial. The WHO is a complex body where people from low and middle income countries are fighting on a daily basis. You're choosing not to look at them because you keep looking at the white folk from the rich country and you want to only fight them. But you're not looking at the brown and black folk who often do not necessarily ally with these high-income country actors, but who are constantly fighting them. But you don't study them. So even decolonization often disempowers because it's only focused on some actors who, who it thinks is the enemy and therefore ignores potential allies with whom bridges can be created to create bigger spaces within international and global health. So that is my provocation, that why not? So in my own experience, 
in my 20 years of working with WHO, I have always found like-minded people from all over the world. That includes white people too, who we may, who acknowledge they're from settler communities in North America or Australasia, but also, you know, uh, are much more committed than other people who are not self-reflective. So for me, decolonization is a constant act of self-reflection, which all of us have to go through. As we talk about doing good, be self-reflective of our own privilege. So in a UK context, I am of South Asian origin, I'm BAME, but I can't claim to be dispossessed because I have so much privilege. So I have to then self-reflectively look at who is less powerful for me in the British system. And that is usually the Pakistani, Bangladeshi, origin, working class person who hasn't got the breaks I've got, but would love to have the breaks I've had in the UK university system. And therefore, my act of decolonization would be to create space for them to come into this system to have the tools to change the system. For me, it isn't about burning down the system, but actually populating the system with people who have been kept out of the system so that the system is forced to change. Can I say, and that is what I, and that is can what I, I say, as someone yeah. who's come from that angle of reform, you know, the first time I got locked up by police and my ex husband became a police officer, with, you know, and we had the Royal Commission to Black Deaths in Custody, we had recruitment of Aboriginal police officers to enter the system to change it. And what we see is black bodies being changed more than the system. So I come to war not as an easy option, but knowing the violence of peace in the way in which it's betrayed blackfellas. Um, it's betrayed our people in accepting that the settlers have our interests at heart. And so it's because of, um, it's a, not a desire to necessarily destroy the joint, but it's out of love for blackfellas, knowing that we deserve better. And um, I'm my interest is not appealing to settlers, um, though I will have some fights with them in legal cases and, and, and political instances. But where I invest my labour is in armouring up our own people with both the spear and the shield to protect and to fight for our people and our rights as Indigenous peoples, as First Nations of this country, rights that are contested every day. And, you know, every win we get, whether it's the Mabo decision, um, gets repealed back and our rights are taken. So we are in a war, not of our own choosing, not of our making, and my interest is in how do we support our people to fight a war that's never leaving this continent. Um, and I know the violence of reform, that if we just get enough inside the system, we can change it. There well, are too many me, white people are being too. brutalised by it. Um, and that's, I know that too. So in terms, yeah, and so in terms of the um, destroying systems, for me, giving up hope in settler institutions enables me to see the possibility of building something else. And it's in those other places of building that we create, not because someone's granted it to us, because we just make it happen. So when we talk about a sovereignty unceded, that's what we mean, is we do it anyway. Um, we are the you know, oldest living culture on the planet, but we also have the highest suicide rates in the world. Now, th that, that is what drives me to affect change um, and because of what is, what is happening to our people. And... Many people would like to believe that Australia is a very pleasant country, that it's progressive and, and a wealthy country, but it's a very violent country to First Nations peoples who are both first race and First Nations, and it's unrelenting in its violence. I completely agree with Chelsea. But who's our people in India? I'm only speaking for my people. people. I can only there. speak as for my people. I can't speak for you. I'm speaking yeah. from so my that, place. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. So, so you have to acknowledge. But that, can I that say there is something to be learned from blackfellas? There is something to be learned from this place. We may be three percent of the population. We may be, you know, that the, the people may think that we have nothing to teach the world, but maybe, maybe we do, as the oldest living culture in the world. Maybe we could. We could offer something so, without being dismissed out of hand. 
no no one's dismissing the, anyone out of hand but in a subcontinent which has about 2 billion people with about 10% of that 2 billion historically ruling the majority even before the european colonial settlers came in we have to have a more complex understanding of what possibly settler community I would encourage you to think so, about so how the, you're in, using in, in, the term complex in relation to me as a First Nations Australian because what I offer is not a simple understanding. And to use the word complex, there's something going on there that I would encourage you to I'm think about the assumption about embedded Asia. within it. I'm talking about South Asia. I'm talking about South Asia. We're a continent made up of hundreds of nations, hundreds of nations here. For me, I think this is the type of conversation I, I, I said we ought to be having more of. the conversations that are rooted and grounded in mm. real realities of peoples mm. and their struggles and they are different one place to another they have different hues and shades from one place to mm. another and and to sort of claim that we are having a decolonization conversation without attending to those particularities right. we are not having a conversation at all right, right. yeah I think our conversation thus far has shown how important it is for this movement not to be collapsed into a single perspective but we can all still learn from each other's experiences and it's important that we listen to each other so on that note perhaps we could hear what messages each of you have for our listeners Chelsea could we start with you Oh I get the easy question um look the focus of um my work um moving forward and i guess has been for some time is really thinking more deeply around what it is to foreground indigenous sovereignty um intellectually um in particularly in terms of um our research institute of rejecting the notion of indigenous intellectual nullius or of intellectual inferiority and uh recognizing that our people have long theorized survival in this place and have something to teach the world not just about this place but to teach the world more broadly about survival um and so i'm really interested in the ways in which we support that both in our academic institution but also within our research institute when we enter into a global stage um even as indigenous peoples with other settler colonial states um the fact that we're 3% was small in number it's presumably no very little um and um we want to change that here um um and that's the exciting place um that I'm enjoying um nurturing and supporting other indigenous scholars who come to the academy not to be a member of it but to dismantle the disciplinary knowing about us that continues to operate violently whether it's the anthropological accounts that don't say that we don't know our country um whether it's lawyers um and and taking up that fight legally and so it's a really exciting space despite the fact that we're so few in number thank you and um sandro what's next next for you so i mean you know i mean where i stand in my current historical research is i've learned that for time immemorial before the europeans came to asia or after the left asia a small group of people have used various identities and identities and labels and you know generalizations to say that they represent an entire nation or an entire group in independent india for example when it's actually a small political leadership a tiny fraction of the population uh that has always accrued and protected its power uh, uh and claimed to look after the majority that are poor and disempowered so so for me it's doing more research about voices within the disempowered in south asia uh, uh who have created spaces political spaces activist spaces and made change and better understand those systems and 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 so i think for the next few years my decolonizing work is going to be about tabulating understanding recording but then using my expertise to convert that into formal educational materials that then goes gets embedded not just within the university of leeds but across 
uh, the university networks that we have collaborations okay, with. Thank you. And um, Catherine, what's next for you in your work? Um, I think I'm a little bit more impatient than most, and so <laughs> I want I want things to change, but I'm also you know realistic knowing that um, it's very difficult so I'm on to getting things that are practical getting things that sort of chip away at the system and I don't want to be lying on my deathbed saying oh my god my kids are going to be you know going through the same system that I have gone through so I, I, I want to see things happen and so so most most of my work is revolving around the place of African institutions in global health and trying to figure out how do we meet the rest of the world in the middle and not to be recipients of um, charity when it comes to what we do, but also charity in how power is dismantled. Like we're sitting, waiting to be decolonized. So it is that, so we are working on something around how, you know, African institutions sort of meet the rest of the world in the middle, in a flawed system, admittedly. And so it's not about dismantling those um, historical power structures. It's more about the short term, what is possible. So most of my work is revolving around that. Great, thank you. And Shay, uh, finally to you, what, what's what's next in your work? When when you look at um, the governance of research, in other words, what we call research ethics, something that strikes you and struck me the first time I looked at it, at what sort of what the rules of ethics are is that they completely um, assume away power differentials, right? So you won't see in any research ethics, application conditions, um, the, the principles, you know, first do no harm, all of those principles, it assumes away that there are power differentials. Uh, and that power differentials have reverberations across epistemologies, across people's ways of analyzing things and methods they choose, the audience to which they ad address themselves, the purpose <coughs> to which they aim to conduct research. All of those things are assumed away in how we think about research ethics. And I'm really very, very interested in characterizing what, first, um, what it would look like to take power differential seriously in how we think about research ethics, first. But to sort of think about that in, in more broad ways around knowledge ecosystems. What, what does a thriving knowledge ecosystem look like? As we draw to a close, I'd like to thank our guests for joining us for this really important and enlightening discussion. Um, do check out the other episodes in the series where we'll be exploring the impact of colonialism on health and medicine, the intersection with feminism, the way in which colonisation has affected the conduct and outcome of research, and what we as an institution in this should be doing with all the information we've learned. We've also commissioned a series of articles of viewpoints on this work, and they'll all be available for free online, along with the other episodes in the podcast, which you can access at bmj.com forward slash decolonizing dash health. Uh, and we'll make sure we include a link in the show notes as well. If you have anything to add to the discussion, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave a rapid response to one of the articles in the series. And uh, we hope you found this episode enlightening and thought provoking and that you are ready to join us in figuring out what decolonisation means for you. We'll see you soon. Bye for now.